Hello, my name is Toby Helliwell. I'm a GP or family physician in the UK and Professor of General Practice at Keele University and the Midlands Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust in North Staffordshire, which is halfway between Birmingham and Manchester in England. I've been asked to do a short talk on the role of GP in PMR diagnosis and care. And my PhD very much investigated diagnosis and treatment of PMR in the community. And in the UK, the vast majority of PMR patients, 80% in one UK study, are exclusively diagnosed and managed in family medicine. In other words, they never see a specialist. This might not be the case in many other parts of the world, but family physicians will still play a key role in suspecting PMR, diagnosing it, and then caring for those who are being treated for it. So, suspecting PMR, this is tricky because PMR can present, especially in its early stages, quite non-specifically. And this is why it can be so difficult for family doctors. I always think about a paper published in 2008 by Professor Prof um, Bhaskar Desgupta and colleagues, where they asked 27 experts on PMR to submit features of PMR of importance. And they listed in that exercise almost 70 features. And this illustrates the variety of ways in which PMR can present. And so rarely at the first encounter do people present with those classic features of bilateral shoulder and or hip girdle pain, morning stiffness, raised inflammatory markers, etc. It can be much more insidious. So people might start off with fatigue, unilateral shoulder pain, being a bit achy, etc. They might put this down to just getting older. And many might have normal inflammatory markers at least initially. This is all in the context too of people in the classic age range, typically over at 50 years old, of having illnesses that might mimic PMR, for example, osteoarthritis, or be taking medications that might cause some of the symptoms, e.g. statin, for example, statin medications, which can cause muscle aches. There is a fairly comprehensive list of PMR mimicking illnesses in another paper by Professor Dasgupta, and colleagues in the British Society for Rheumatology paper from 2010. And it is well worth a read. Unfortunately, I don't have a definitive right pathway for diagnosis for PMR. And there is no diagnostic test or diagnostic criteria that I know of for PMR that is 100% accurate. And this talk isn't meant to frighten, but rather to illustrate a more pragmatic approach to be adopted. So firstly, be vigilant and curious in considering PMR in the first place, but also consider the wider possible differential diagnosis, paying particular note to red flag symptoms like significant weight loss that might suggest other possibly more serious illness. Investigate judiciously for those mimicking illnesses, remembering especially in PMR that a normal test doesn't necessarily mean PMR isn't present. And follow up arrange further appointments if needed to review, see if symptoms are developing and changing and reassess. Now you will see patients who are classical or respond very nicely to treatment, often glucocorticoid medications like prednisolone, and you can be confident of the diagnosis and depending on your usual local practice, you can start treatment and this might depend on where you are in the world. Some places have fast track services to specialist reviews in which case use these services. And if being seen won't be delayed, and by that I mean being seen within a week or two, and your patient's symptoms aren't too severe, 
I'd suggest holding off treatment, if at all possible, as treatment may impact on symptoms and affect how the specialist review goes. Also, in certain circumstances, refer early, especially if the diagnosis isn't clear. Your patients are very young, i.e. below the age of 50. Their inflammatory markers are either normal or very, very high, or they may suffer significant side effects from standard treatment. For example, people with unstable diabetes, severe coexisting osteoporosis and illnesses like that. If you have started treatment and your patient hasn't responded hugely, or you are struggling to wean down the treatment, then again, question the diagnosis, think what else might be happening, think about specialist referral. So even if diagnosis is made by specialists, for many, ongoing treatment and follow-up is usually in family medicine settings. Be fastidious about follow-up to check on symptoms and progress, prescriptions and treatment reduction, and review fairly regularly if you have the resources to do so. Think about prophylaxis too. For adverse effects of treatments for things like osteoporosis and gastric protection, this may vary dependent on local guidelines and any comorbidities of medications or medications your patient already has. Finally, a quick word on giant cell arteritis or GCA. The American College of Rheumatologists quote a rate of between 5 and 15% of PMR patients developing giant cell arteritis during their treatment of PMR, although quoted rates in some parts of the world are higher. Always screen for this if, re if reviewing your PMR patient and consider the wise set of symptoms of GCA beyond the commonly quoted ones of headache and visual disturbances. Things like fatigue, loss of appetite, jaw pain, weight loss, or feeling flu-like. This is quite a lot to take in when being diagnosed with PMR, new medications, reducing treatment regimens, etc. But I think it is important that there is a discussion about GCA and our PMR patients are educated about it because rapid recognition and treatment can prevert, prevent irreversible compl complications of the illness like blindness. I recommend also sharing some written information about GCA when you are happy to diagnose PMR so that patients are well aware of it and to seek urgent review if they are experiencing GCA symptoms. I hope this short video has been helpful and many thanks for letting me contribute to improving the care of people living with PMR. Thanks for watching. Hello, my name is Sebastian Satwi, and I'm an, uh, a physician and a rheumatologist at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, PA. My uh, specific focus and interest, of course, vasculitis and PMR. So I'm, it's a pleasure to be talking today about which patients or individuals with PMR need to be referred for rheumatology care and assessment. So a very unique thing about PMR, polymadromatica, compared to a lot of our other conditions, is that um, PMR tends to be very commonly, very frequently actually managed uh, solely uh, under the care of primary care physicians or general practitioners, as they called in the UK. And some of the data, that most of the epidemiological data that we have actually comes from the UK, and some of their numbers have shown that up to 82% of patients with polymadromatica are exclusively taken care of by general practitioners. The one source of epidemiological data that we have in the US uh, that comes from the Umstead County actually shows that up to 40% of patients, these are a little bit older data from like, I would say early 2000s, 
um, up to 40% of patients uh, with a diagnosis of, of PMR uh, actually did not see um, a rheumatologist during over four years of, of mean follow-up, while, while 28% of them saw a rheumatologist once. So this is certainly very unique, and this is certainly very different for patients uh, compared to most of our other rheumatic conditions, and also taking into account that uh, in individuals over the age of 50 and even more during uh, kind of above the age of 60, P PMR is one of the most uh, frequent uh, systemic inflammatory conditions. <laughs> so, and what, besides this kind of unique aspect, PMR by itself has some other specific I guess, challenges or, or aspects are unique to itself. One is that there's no specific diagnostic test for, the, for, for PMR. We don't have any serologic, serolo serologies to re depend on. We don't have any kind of a specific imaging as much as certainly there is a, an uptake in the research with, with regards to imaging studies to diagnose or assess for PMR. And the second thing is that we're talking about a lot of older adults, older adults that certainly are going to be quite uh, potentially vulnerable or at higher risk, given the higher kind of prevalence of comorbidities to the use of glucocorticoids and the prolonged use of it. <laughs> so in my very sincere and honest opinion, uh, which could be, um, um, you know, again, there, there, uh, there are challenges to this. And certainly the, the, I think the one also limitation in, in the study and the care of polymyodramatic is there's a there's significant gaps in the care of these patients. Um, but the first thing is my opinion, I think most patients with a, either a suspected diagnosis of PMR or with PMR should be assessed by a rheumatologist. And again, this goes in line with some of the points that I've brought up. First of all, as much as um, I think we all retain the classical uh, description and the uh, uh, of, a of, the, of patients with PMR or suspected PMR, it is a challenging diagnosis. We know that it is. We know that there's data that actually showed that up to 30% of patients who initially received the diagnose diagnosis of PMR by a rheumatologist actually had a different condition. Um, in a recent global survey that included both general practitioners and rheumatologists, there, uh, when patients were seen by a rheumatologist after a referral for, from a PCP, uh, there was a kind of... A, at least, on average, 15% of patients ended up having a different diagnosis, and this kind of vary, range from 5 to up to 30% again. Uh, so we know that there are challenges in the diagnosis of PMR. Not everyone has a classical presentation. Not everyone is necessarily, and, and again, we have, our tools are, necessary, uh, is, are a little bit more limited compared to other conditions. A second reason for this is that we know that GCA can actually uh, be occult or be quote unquote subclinical in some patients with PMR. And certainly we are more in tune of the diagnosis of giant arteritis as well as we are for the diagnosis of PMR compared to non-rheumatology uh, non colleagues. Uh, so the assessment also is kind of, is, is certainly critical. And the, th and the third thing is that we know from some kind of published limited experience that the early re re referral and early assessment of patients with PMR, particularly off prior to the starting glucocorticoid treatment can be beneficial. There's a couple of studies that show that fast track referrals can actually lead to an earlier, a more correct diagnosis, more rapid diagnosis, and actually the use of lower doses of glucocorticoids as well. And there are benefits as well of the, share, of the shared care between primary care physicians and 
and rheumatologists. And, it, and this has been shown in a couple of studies uh, that although, again, with some limitations show that one, lower doses of glucocorticoids were used, uh, which certainly translates into a decreased risk of uh, glucocorticoid toxicity. And second, uh, the use of uh, addressing and, and the use of uh, medications to prevent glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis or the management of osteoporosis in these patients. So in summary, I think everybody everybody with a suspected or a diagnosis of, of of PMR should be seen. Now, uh, there are certainly limitations and there's issues, of course, in the workforce and limited, and some in some places in particular, limited access to rheumatology care or assessment. So as a starting from the starting point of everybody, I think there are patients that certainly need to be prioritized and the patients who are at higher risk. And you can actually split this group of individuals into two for two different purposes. One are diagnosis. Uh, Patients, for example, who are younger, below the age of 60, so younger patients with PMR should be assessed as well, given that it's a, a you know, it's not necessarily a typical population or you would suspect this. Uh, patients with a typical presentation, lack of shoulder pain, lack of morning stiffness, lack of elevated, like normal inflammatory markers or pretty significant elevated inflammatory markers. Those are patients that also should be prioritized as well. Uh, pretty severe system, systemic features, you know, significant weight loss, high fevers, um, um, you know, those patients also need to be, again, from a diagnostic standpoint, anyone who is, of course, suspected who have any symptoms that, are, that raise a concern for GCA, they need to be immediately seen by rheumatologists or patients who have any other features concerning for any other systemic rheumatic disease. From a therapeutic standpoint, patients that should also be prioritized are patients who, when started on prednisone, they have an either incomplete partial or lack or lack of response to 15 to 20 milligrams of prednisone. Those patients, of course, need to be uh, assessed by a specialist to either reassess for the diagnosis, also, also in particular, suspicion for GCA. Other um, patients that also need to be um, kind of assessed from a therapeutic standpoint, and again, prioritize are patients who are having constant frequent relapses early on while trying to taper glucocorticoids, especially nowadays that we're having more evidence about glucocorticoid sparing agents for the treatment of PMR, patients who are at a high risk of glucocorticoid toxicity, patients who already have osteoporosis, patients who have a diagnosis of, of, of diabetes, uh, patients, uh, obese patients as well, where you know, the prolonged use of glucocorticoids are going to certainly bring or exacerbate or already existing problems. And historically, uh, another population that has been, and this is, for example, guiding from some of the UK guidelines is patients who have been on prolonged use of glucocorticoids. Uh, there's, I think the, the, the time is actually mentioned to be two years, which I say it's probably too much because at that point, the assessment is certainly going to be challenging. So I would say kind of frequent relapses or difficulty tapering early in the, in the first few months is something that should raise concern. But again, these are this that I would say are based on some evidence and, ba and based on more expert opinion. Uh, are patients who need to be prioritized, but I go back to my first um, pitch to everybody uh, that all PMR patients should, should be seen by a rheumatologist, whether that timing of referral should defer or, 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 uh, or hold, put the starting glucocorticoids on hold. Uh, that is probably something that needs to be uh, discussed with a patient and should be a uh, uh, decision should be made as a result of shared decision making. I think it's in the ideal setting, patients should be seen off glucocorticoids, given that we know the, rap the rapid response, uh, changes on even imaging, on inflammatory markers. Um, 
But again, everybody, ideally, without glucocorticoids, corticoids, depending on what the discussion with the patient is. Um, and I think we need to have a more active role in the care of these patients. So that was my conversation regarding which patients need to be referred to rheumatology. Uh, please let me know if you have any thoughts or any questions. Feel free to comment. And, and again, thank you again. Bye. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Max Yates, and I'm an academic rheumatologist based in Norwich. I've been asked to give you um, a talk about three main points. And really what I'd like to cover are the etiology of polymyalgia rheumatica, which is largely unknown. Uh, secondly, I'd like to talk to you about the incidence and how estimates for incidence vary around the world. And then finally, I'd like to talk to you about steroid usage. Uh, and particularly uh, from administrative observational data sets. So first of all, if we take um, the, the etiology of polymyaldramatica, as I said, it's largely unknown. We know that it, it generally affects people of older age, and typically it's said that, you know, those in their 70s are at greatest risk. Actually, if you look at the estimates that have been published, uh, the age-adjusted incidence by 10-year age band continues to go up, even in, in people in their 80s and 90s. Um, however, it is true to say that the majority of people are diagnosed in their 70s. This is largely reflective of the demographic structure of many countries uh, with an, an older population within their 70s than within their 90s, um, obviously to do with uh, life expectancy. Now, there have been some genetic um, studies looking at polymyaldramatica, and some, uh, some uh, investigators have also tried uh, looking at genome-wide association studies. And really, there's, there's not been a consistent story. And, you know, sometimes people have argued that this may be due to case selection. So perhaps we've not managed to capture a pure a pool of, of patients with polymyaldramatica, and this has then led to uh, lack of an association being displayed. Um, the other thing is that people have looked at kind of uh, lifestyle factors or environmental factors, and again, these are kind of inconsistent. Um, however, you know, there, there does seem to be uh, a strong uh, correlation with age, and women are more affected than men. Um, of the genetic studies, HLA and, and PTMP22, these sorts of things have, have been purported as, as showing some uh, signals of significance. Now, turning to incidence, um, the highest incidence is uh, within Western Europe and particularly more northerly latitudes, uh, Norway, Sweden, for example. And if you take those countries, then the incidence in those aged over 50 can be as high as one in a thousand, perhaps even one in 800. And particularly if you then move to people in their 70s, or one in 500, one in 300 people. And um, if you then reflect that to the United States, overall, um, for people aged 50 or above, uh, the estimate is around one in 1,500 people. Um, but if you then look to other places around the world, uh, there was a recent study um, in Buenos Aires, um, and they had about a rate of one in uh, 1,200. 
so similar to the United States. Um, and then you take somewhere like Korea, where it's actually one in 50,000. So there does seem to be you know, variation around the world. Now, we can either accept that as truth. We can think that maybe it's just chance findings, which seems a little bit unlikely, given uh, the fact that studies have consistently reported a, a high incidence in, in Europe and uh, North America. Or we can consider that there's some sort of bias. So the way how these studies have been constructed, it's important to look at how they've defined the disease or how they've captured their population in the first place. So obviously studies that are from GP databases, or in, in America you would call that family practitioners, those treated in the community, well, then you're probably going to end up with a greater uh, capture of people. It's more likely that, that those criteria are going to be sensitive, so that you'll capture everyone who has disease. But it may be that not all of those individuals will uh, reach uh, classification criteria sets. So typically, those studies that report on case classification criteria set uh, validation will report a lower uh, disease estimate. Finally, if you look at steroids, um, that does vary. But it also, there was a meta-analysis published a couple of years ago, which shows a, a surprising degree of um, correlation and uh, consistency in terms of the duration of steroid use. So whether people are starting at 15 or 20 uh, milligrams of, of prednisone, um, but if you look at the, the, then the continuation of their treatment, around 50% of people will be on steroids for longer than two years. If you take that out to three years, there's still a third of people left. And by the time you get out to four years, a quarter of people left. And it's those individuals that are then likely to be left on long-term steroids. So as, as a community, as practitioners, as doctors, we really need to think about how we best target any new drugs that come available to us to try and reduce the steroid burden and ultimately reduce uh, those number of individuals who are left on long-term steroids. So John, that's really what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and if anyone has any further questions, then please look me up on Twitter or uh, have a Google search, find my, my work uh, a profile page and I'll be happy to answer any email queries that you have. Thanks very much. My name is Stephen Paget, and I'm a rheumatologist at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Today we're going to focus on the use of the sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein in the diagnosis and treatment of polymyalgia rheumatica. PMR has been recognized for almost 100 years, but its real definition is a clinical entity occurred in the landmark study of Davison, Spira, and Plotz, performed at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York in 1966. They defined the illness as the one we know today and enabled physicians to differentiate it from rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, and viral syndromes. An elevated sedimentation rate in C-reactive protein were key findings in this highly inflammatory and steroid-responsive illness, and continue to be so today. 
The importance of C-reactive protein derives from its stimulatory effect of the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-6 on the liver in the setting of inflammation. In PMR, IL-6 and IL-6 receptor levels are elevated and correlate with pain. In 1966, Connie Weyand, in her landmark study, showed that temporal arteries from patients with only PMR and not giant cell arteritis contained IL-6. CRP is a better indicator of inflammation than ESR. It is more sensitive and responds more quickly to change in the clinical situation. False negatives and false positives result are more common when measuring ESR. Renal disease, female sex, and older age increase ESR. In lupus, elevated CRP often reflects infection, not active disease. The CRP is nearly always elevated in PMR. In two reports, an elevated ESR of greater than 30 millimeters per hour were noted in 91 to 94% of patients at the time of diagnosis of PMR, while 99% of such patients had an increased elevated CRP of greater than five milligrams per liter. Patients vary as to which of these acute phase reactants best correlates with their inflammatory state and has to be defined by you, their physician. Superimposed infections can also have an effect upon these. Most recent studies on the effectiveness of IL-6 inhibitors in the treatment of PMR employed the C-reactive protein as a sign of inflammation. The treatment of PMR demands a thoughtful clinician who is constantly balancing the patient's symptoms, comorbidities, laboratory tests, and side effects. As Harry Spira said, do not chase the sed rate because you may up with higher cumulative levels and side effects in this elderly population. Hello, I'm Ken Warrington, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic. And today I'd like to talk about red flags in the diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica, or PMR. As you all know, PMR is a clinical diagnosis. And so taking a careful history, conducting a thorough physical examination are essential components of reaching a diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. But PMR can be a little tricky, uh, mainly because PMR has many mimics. And of course, we don't yet have a specific diagnostic biomarker for this disease. So we use markers of inflammation, the sedimentation rate and the CRP. We expect one of those to be, at least one of those to be elevated in PMR, but they are not diagnostic. They are nonspecific markers of inflammation. So we have to have this heightened and ongoing awareness of potential mimics of PMR, and we'll talk a little bit about how to sort through those. The first point I'd like to make is that a subset of patients with PMR have associated giant cell arteritis. GCA is the most common form of systemic vasculitis in adults. It affects the aorta and its main branches. And depending on the study one looks at, 
10 to 20% of patients with PMR do in fact have concomitant GCA. So it really is essential for clinicians to pick up these individuals who have an associated diagnosis of GCA because of the potential consequences of that disease, including vision loss, cerebrovascular disease, stroke, and late complications of aortic aneurysm and possible dissection. So whenever we're seeing a patient with PMR, the first issue is we need to think about the symptoms of GCA. We need to ask the patient about those symptoms. And we want to educate the patient to alert us, to contact us, should they develop persistent headache, jaw claudication, scalp tenderness, sudden vision change, and so forth. Maybe somewhat more subtle is the subset of patients who have large vessel GCA. These are patients who may come in with claudication of the extremities, who may have aortitis, which often is subclinical and may not produce symptoms. So again, we have to have a heightened suspicion for these complications and evaluate patients further. If they have cranial symptoms, it's often pursuing either imaging, such as a temporal artery ultrasound, or a temporal artery biopsy. If we are more concerned about the large vessel variant of GCA, meaning GCA that's involving the aorta and the arch branches, then we may be considering imaging, such as CT angiography, MR angiography, or in selected cases, PET-CT to evaluate for, again, inflammatory disease in the aorta and the large arteries. Of course, we can't image every patient with polymyalgia rheumatica. So we have to use our clinical judgment. Again, identify patients who may have symptoms concerning for GCA, clinical signs, those might be tenderness over the temporal arteries, but they might be more subtle, such as reduction or asymmetry in pulses in the extremities or asymmetric blood pressures. But the patient with PMR who has refractory disease, meaning we've tried to taper the prednisone and they have recurrent relapses, that would be a good patient to image and to consider the possibility of concomitant large vessel vasculitis. The second point I'd like to make is that polymyalgia rheumatica is a disease of articular, so joint and periarticular inflammation, predominantly large proximal joints. So we think about the shoulders, the hips. If patients have more distal joint inflammation, so for example, involving the hands, the feet, the wrists, we have to have a heightened suspicion that that patient may have rheumatoid arthritis. These patients we would evaluate with serologic studies like rheumatoid factor and CCP. We also might, may want to obtain radiographs of the hands and feet to look for any damage, erosions, for example, that might clue us into the diagnosis of RA, especially because these are often elderly patients, and we know that elderly people with rheumatoid arthritis may have seronegative disease, so we may not be picking that up on our serologies. Studies have shown, indeed, that up to maybe 30% of people with PMR will get reclassified as rheumatoid arthritis. So this is not an uncommon scenario. 
and it may change our approach to treatment because, of course, we have multiple treatment options for individuals with rheumatoid arthritis. But in the arthritis category, we also need to consider other mimics, such as spondyloarthropathies. Again, these patients, we would expect them to have more prominent sacroiliac joint symptoms, and we may consider in targeted individuals obtaining imaging of the sacroiliac joints. But other clues might be the presence of enthesitis, dactylitis, uveitis, and other associated conditions uh, that may clue us in to a spondyloarthropathy. Next category within the arthritis group is crystalline arthropathy. And one of the conditions we encounter in clinical practice not too infrequently is CPPD or calcium pyrophosphate arthropathy, which can present with generalized uh, articular inflammation, joint inflammation that could look like rheumatoid or could look like uh, PMR, especially those individuals who have crowned dens syndrome. This is where there is soft tissue calcification around the second uh, cervical vertebra, and patients will come in with neck pain, stiffness, uh, sometimes low-grade fever and high inflammation markers uh, that can mimic PMR. And then the third point I'd like to make is that, again, PMR has other mimics. Although we use the term polymyalgia, rheumatica, PMR is really not a disease of muscle. It's, again, articular and periarticular inflammation. So if there are concerns for muscle pathology, if the patient has significant upper lower extremity proximal weakness, if we see elevation of muscle enzymes, such as the CPK, the aldolase, we have to consider the possibility of a, an inflammatory myopathy. This could be an autoimmune myopathy, such as polymyositis or dermatomyositis. Less commonly, statin-induced myopathy could also mimic uh, PMR. Finally, last point is non-rheumatologic conditions can also mimic PMR. Again, as good internists, we have to take a comprehensive history, conduct a general exam, and think about other things that might mimic PMR, such as hypothyroidism, Parkinsonism, where patients present with significant stiffness and perhaps a tremor, and other serious, although less common conditions, such as a systemic infection like endocarditis or disc space infection, and again, less often malignancy. Of course, we can't screen every patient with PMR for these diseases, but we do have to keep them in mind as we're taking a history, as we're taking an exam for any clues that might suggest some of these mimics. Targeted laboratory testing, of course, is helpful. And then finally, again, once we've started treatment for PMR, we want to follow patients closely so that if the patient is having recurrent relapses, if the clinical course is not as we would have anticipated, then we would want to proceed with additional workup. Thank you for your attention. Hi, this is Robert Spira at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And I'd like to talk today a little bit about mimics of polymyalgia rheumatica. 
We all know polymyalgia well, and we encounter it in practice as it is among the most common inflammatory diseases of people over the age of 50, and even more so in as a new onset inflammatory disorder of people over the age of 70. But that's a group of patients in whom many different um, conditions, problems can contribute to similar symptoms. Polymyalgia is perhaps the most quintessentially clinical syndrome of any of our rheumatic disease. There's no single specific lab test or biomarker that defines the disease but rather it's a constellation of signs and symptoms supported by some lab features that helps us know that this is what the patient has. And indeed, going back to 1966, when my father was one of a few authors on the first description of polymyalgia rheumatica in the US literature, in arthritis and rheumatism at the time, they had to make the argument that this indeed was a syndrome onto itself. So we kind of know what it looks like. It's people often over the age of 50, even more so over the age of 60 or 70, with generalized aches and pains and feeling systemically unwell, often involving the shoulder girdle, and often with findings on labs suggesting inflammatory disease. But there are other things that can present that way, and we always have to think about that. And we have to think about the fact that not only are there mimics of polymyalgia, but polymyalgia can coexist with other morbidities, which may contribute to similar symptoms. And when I think about this as I approach the patients, I kind of think in categories. So first of all, there are degenerative or mechanical musculoskeletal issues that can mimic polymyalgia, of course. So patients with rotator cuff injuries can present with bilateral shoulder pain, and they may say, I feel worse overnight or moving in bed. Patients with osteoarthritis of the neck or generalized osteoarthritis can present with generalized achiness, which is the hallmark of polymyalgia. Patients with fibromyalgia, which we don't think a lot about in this age group, but it's a prevalent disorder, maybe 10 to 15% of the general population. There can be fibromyalgia in this population and fibromyalgia can coexist with fibromyalgia. That can be very tricky. We also know that among the inflammatory conditions with really, which really polymyalgia is an inflammatory condition, there are other inflammatory conditions that we would think about um, when evaluating a patient presenting with this types of general achiness, but also let's say markers of elevated um, acute phase reactants on laboratory testing. So rheumatoid arthritis often presents at a younger age, but it can present at an older age. And polymyalgia rheumatica versus is this rheumatoid arthritis of later onset can be very hard to tease out. And it's sometimes only over time that that can tease itself out, particularly recognizing that perhaps 10% of patients with polymyalgia rheumatica can have tenosynovitis in their hands or wrists or knees. So it can look very much like a primary peripheral inflammatory arthritis. Generally, you won't see the presence of rheumatoid factor or CCP, and almost by definition, you will not see evidence of erosive disease, but that would be an important distinction to think about and usually is very doable between checking the appropriate labs and sometimes radiographs. There's the entity of RS3PE, relapsing symmetric synovitis with pitting edema, 
um, which is a very similar entity on some level to polymyalgia in that there are elevated acute phase reactants and puffy hands. And it also responds well to steroids, but it generally doesn't have the shoulder predominance of symptoms, nor does it have um, the association with giant cell arteritis. And of course, giant cell arteritis can present with polymyalgia rheumatica symptoms, but I wouldn't really call that a mimic. I would call that a polymyalgic presentation of GCA. So we would want to think about GCA in a patient in whom they are presenting with polymyalgia, but let's say not responding to low doses of steroids. And of course, we always want to ask about signs or symptoms of polymyalgia. And finally, there are non-inflammatory and non-primarily musculoskeletal disorders that can present with non-specific polymyalgic symptoms, such as generalized muscle achiness, fatigue, etc. So definitely endocrinologic disease can present that way. I usually check thyroid function studies in these patients. Often there are signs and findings on exam that might point to hypothyroidism, but those tests are easy to do. And in the context of the very elevated sedimentation rate we might see in these patients, especially recognizing that there may be underlying mechanical issues contributing to pain, I'm often checking a serum immunofixation, thinking about myeloproliferative disease, particularly if the patient has cytopenias or even significant anemia beyond the mild anemia we often suspect for polymyalgia rheumatica. And one of the interesting tools we use to help us tease out whether it's polymyalgia rheumatica or not, even though it didn't emerge as discriminatory in the classification criteria, is the response of patients to relatively low doses of corticosteroids in terms of us feeling more confident that it's polymyalgia. But that is not a perfect test. And there are patients who can feel much better with degenerative arthritis or other systemic disorders on some dose of steroids. And of course, always the reason we want to exclude mimics of any disorder is to be as specific as possible diagnostically. Number one, not to miss a potentially dangerous or otherwise treatable cause of the disorder, but particularly in this era of the emergence of targeted therapies proving effective for polymyalgia rheumatica, we really want to know that the patient we're treating does indeed have polymyalgia rheumatica. This is Robert Spira. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Anisha Dua, and I'm an associate professor at Northwestern University, and I'm talking now from Chicago, Illinois. Um, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys about polymyalgia rheumatica, should you worry about occult GCA? Now, classically, we think about PMR and GCA as very closely related diseases. There's a lot of commonalities in the demographics, primarily affecting the elderly and those of Scandinavian or Eastern European descent, and also the pathophysiology of these two diseases. There's increased prevalence of senescent T cells, reduction in the level of Tregs, more Th17 lymphocytes, and lower B cells in the peripheral blood. Additionally, it's clear that there's a subset of patients with PMR, about 15 to 20%, who will go on to develop full-blown GCA. And that's why it's really important to ask about symptoms of GCA during each follow-up visit with your PMR patients, and also to consider assessing for GCA, both cranial and large vessel symptoms, in those PMR patients with elevated inflammatory markers who are not reporting recurrence of their classic PMR symptoms or who are refractory to low-dose prednisone therapy. 
We know that treatment in both of these diseases include glucocorticoids, but the dose that's required to control the inflammation in GCA and prevent vision loss or other ischemic complications are much higher than the ones that we use in PMR. But what about patients who present with classic PMR symptoms? They deny any cranial symptoms of GCA. They don't have any limb claudication. In both diseases, we expect the inflammatory markers to be raised. So are there any clues that might point out subclinical GCA in patients who are presenting with PMR? Now, one study looked at PET scans in patients with only PMR symptoms, and it showed that a third of these patients actually had evidence of large vessel inflammation on PET. And there was another recent uh, prospective study of about 60 newly diagnosed PMR patients, and they performed vascular ultrasound, looking at the facial, temporal, carotid, vertebral, and axillary arteries to look, is there any signs of GCA? And they actually found evidence of vascular involvement in 46% of these newly diagnosed PMR patients, and 22% had asymptomatic or subclinical GCA. Now, in this study, joint effusions were higher in the PMR-GCA overlap group with significance at the hip joint, and then another clue that pointed towards concomitant diagnosis of GCA was highly elevated C-reactive protein values above 26.5. Now, GCA is likely being underdiagnosed in PMR patients at the time of disease onset, and in some cases, PMR might just be the preventing manifestation of GCA. But this raises the issue of whether patients with PMR should be screened with imaging for evidence of large vessel involvement. The fact that 20 to 50% of PMR patients will have an inadequate response to therapy or relapse within the first year may suggest that some of these patients actually do have subclinical GCA. But the catch is that it's still unclear whether treating these patients with PMR and subclinical GCA more aggressively will actually prevent ischemic complications or relapsing disease. One study didn't show any increased relapses or vascular complications in the PMR patients with subclinical large vessel involvement on PET scanning. But larger controlled studies with different imaging modalities need to be done in order to answer this important question. So for the time being, PMR patients with any phenotypic evidence of GCA or refractory disease should be assessed for GCA and treated accordingly. But it remains a question if whether more aggressive treatment in subclinical GCA will actually change outcomes. In my opinion, it would be really hard not to treat potentially too aggressively once I know that there's large vessel inflammation. So at this point, I wouldn't recommend universal screening of PMR patients for subclinical GCA as it would likely lead to overtreatment and unnecessary medication risks without clear benefits. But on the flip side, I would have a very high level of vigilance in screening for GCA, both clinically and looking for occult large vessel inflammation in those PMR patients who have persistently elevated inflammatory markers, an inadequate response to low-dose prednisone, or unexplained elevation of inflammatory markers without recurrence of their PMR symptoms. Thanks for having me today. It was great talking with all of you. Hi, this is Len Calabrese coming at you from the Cleveland Clinic. I'm really, uh, really pleased and proud to join Jack and uh, all this uh, cavalcade of uh, 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 key opinion leaders, experts in the field of PMR this month, because uh, I am passionate about polymyalgia rheumatica. You know, rheumatologists, uh, just at 30,000 feet, this is the disease that we love to encounter because we know that when we make this diagnosis, we can bring dramatic relief and improve quality of life to our patients. Yet at the same time, you know, there are challenges. 
So over this month, you're going to hear all of these different topics. But we have two questions in our mind as we're sitting there contemplating this diagnosis. Number one, uh, if this patient does have polymyalgia rheumatica, do they have giant cell arteritis? We'll put that aside. We have a lot of experts talking about that this month. Secondly, and what I want to address today is, are we making the right diagnosis? Um, let me dig into this for a, a couple of minutes with you guys. Uh, we know that the clinical picture of polymyalgia rheumatica has some general lack of specificity. We don't have a uh, highly predictive um, uh, biomarker to make the diagnosis. Uh, imaging is interesting, but we don't generally uh, use this. Uh, and there's a big differential diagnosis. People are presenting with uh, the acute or subacute onset of pain. Um, they are presenting with the sequelae of unbridled inflammation. And that can bring with it many things, including uh, fatigue and change of mood and um, uh, 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 disturbances of sleep and this early morning stiffness that we demand to be seen as we make this diagnosis. And there's a big differential diagnosis. You go to the textbook of rheumatology, you'll see things like, oh, late onset rheumatoid arthritis. Could this be lupus in the elderly? Um, could this be other rheumatic manifestations such as, you know, spondyloarthritis? Or what about the degenerative arthritis of the shoulders and cervical spine in someone with just an elevated SED rate? Um, uh, a, a number of these diseases uh, uh, can be easy to sort out and uh, some require more challenges. But at the end of the day, all of those things um, will not be harmed by empiric glucocorticoid therapy. I want to leave you with two must rule outs, and there are others, but the two that we must think about in categories of diseases are infection and malignancy. Infection is the area that we are interested in mostly at my center, and uh, uh, I have been involved in my career in two M&M conferences when medicine used to have M&M conferences of fatalities of patients diagnosed and treated as PMR, who ultimately had endocarditis. Endocarditis is a must rule out. I will shout out my friend, Adam Brown, who's done at least five podcasts uh, on his ruminations podcast over endocarditis and the uh, rheumatologist. And why can it mimic it? Patients with endocarditis can have constitutional symptoms. They go on for uh, weeks or months. They can have low-grade fever, which can be seen in PMR. Their acute phase reactants are elevated. They don't have traditional risks for, for endocarditis. I always will think of uh, infection early on, particularly if there are risks, if there are any signs or symptoms that may be suspicious for this, although uh, things like heart murmur, et cetera, are very insensitive. But if a patient does not make that exquisite full house response to glucocorticoids, you better start culturing them up. And uh, the problem here is that some of these cultures uh, just could be culture negative endocarditis, and that always raises the issue of Bartonella. Um, uh, and you uh, may need to go uh, the next step uh, uh, in terms of cardiac imaging and beyond, but endocarditis, endocarditis, endocarditis. The second uh, must rule out is malignancy. Many a patient has sat in the hospital 
um, uh, being treated for polymyalgia rheumatica and has uh, 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 with incomplete response, weight loss, um, uh, unexplained inflammatory illness, as we call it, the the uh, FIO. Um, uh, and uh, we must uh, uh, consider this always in people with atypical features. Where do we go from here? Well, I think that there's some great data from the past five years, some by rheumatologists like George Shedd, who uh, publishes about everything, about the utility of PET-CT. We used to say, oh, we can't get PET-CT. No, we can get PET-CT when we're hunting down malignancies that are occult. And uh, the use of PET-CT and sorting out ultimate diagnosis and atypical uh, PMR um, is um, uh, 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 high up on my list. Um, most of the time we make the diagnosis, most of the time our patients have their disease melt away, but these are the two areas of must rule outs that I want you to think about. Uh, I was happy to chat about it. You know where I'm at, send me an email. Uh, Jack, uh, this is a great series. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Hello, my name is Dr. Claire Owen and I'm a rheumatologist in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and today I've been asked to speak about the importance of imaging for the diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, PMR uh, is, of course, a condition that has traditionally been uh, diagnosed clinically uh, by patients' presentation with bilateral shoulder and hip uh, pain and stiffness in association with raised inflammatory markers. This has largely been due to the absence of a uh, widely available and reliable diagnostic uh, test. Over the past few decades, though, we've started to appreciate uh, PMR's distinctive pathology courtesy of imaging. We now recognise it as a condition characterised by chronic uh, musculotendinous inflammation. And it is this distribution of findings that distinguishes it from other inflammatory conditions, uh, such as rheumatoid arthritis. With that being understood, there's the possibility of utilising imaging uh, in order to help us with diagnosis. But is that really necessary in all cases? The answer from my perspective is probably not, but I think that it's particularly helpful for certain scenarios. This includes patients presenting with unusual uh, clinical features, such as normal inflammatory markers or the absence of involvement of their shoulders, those in whom you're particularly concerned about their risk of long-term glucocorticoid-related adverse events, uh, if there's any uh, possibility that the patient may have underlying large vessel giant cell arteritis, and finally, in those patients who are not responding as you would expect uh, to usual treatments. So what are the options that we have available to us? Uh, well, ultrasound, MRI, and PET-CT. So with ultrasound, uh, bilateral subacromial subdeltoid bursitis is the characteristic lesion uh, of PMR. And this has relatively good sensitivity and specificity for a PMR diagnosis. We can also see additional suggestive features that include biceps tenosynovitis, uh, trochanteric bursitis, and glenohumeral synovitis. Of course, ultrasound was included as an optional criterion uh, in the 2012 provisional classification criteria uh, for PMR. 
The key here, though, is that diagnosis is best aided with ultrasound when you see a combination of abnormalities at both shoulders or alternatively at the shoulder and the hip. Individual findings are insufficient. And that being said, ultrasound tends to be better at discriminating uh, shoulder conditions from polymyalgia rheumatica than it is uh, polymyalgia rheumatica from other inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. And that's largely because ultrasound is limited uh, to imaging more superficial structures. If we look at MRI, uh, it is capable of detecting the same findings as ultrasound, but it does have the added advantage of being able to document uh, deeper musculotendinous inflammation. And this includes peritendinitis and myofascial inflammatory lesions. The latter uh, were described as part of uh, the Tenor study as high T2 stir signal within the affected muscle or forming a line around it. We don't know much about the uh, diagnostic capacity of myofascial inflammatory lesions yet, but we do know that if you are visualising at the pelvis involvement of multiple tendons with peritendinitis bilaterally, that this is, again, highly sensitive and specific for a diagnosis of PMR. Finally, there is PET-CT. Uh, and this really is boding as the new gold standard investigation uh, for PMR. It has the advantage of being able to document the whole body distribution of PMR's uh, pathology. And you get the added advantage of being able to exclude relevant differentials like infection or malignancy, as well as uh, checking for concomitant large vessel giant cell arteritis, uh, which in a, in a recent study uh, was found in up to 25% of new onset PMR patients. What are we looking for on a PET-CT? Well, we see an abnormal pattern of uh, fluorodeoxyglucose uh, uptake around the shoulder and the hip joints in the interspinous regions, as well as adjacent to the ischial tuberosities uh, in the pelvis and at the posterior medial knee. Those last two findings corresponding to peritendinitis of the hamstrings themselves. In terms of diagnostic performance, like the other imaging modalities, uh, PET-CT performs best when you are combining a number of different abnormal findings. There have been a number of different scoring approaches suggested, but ultimately, if you're seeing on a PET-CT scan the presence of abnormal uptake in a periarticular distribution at the shoulders, uh, in the interspinous regions and adjacent to the ischial tuberosities, then it is extremely likely well into the 90th centile that you're dealing with a patient with polymyalgia rheumatica. So uh, ultimately, it would seem that uh, imaging is going to play uh, a greater role as we move forward in our diagnosis uh, of PMR. Uh, it has provided us with new learnings uh, about this condition. There are a number of other uh, things that need to be taken into account when you are ordering imaging, and these, of course, include radiation uh, cost and accessibility, uh, but ultimately, uh, we're seeing a shift in the approach to the diagnosis of PMR courtesy of imaging.